Hey Auntie is recorded in Melbourne, Australia. We acknowledge that this is the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Cullen Nation. We pay our respect to their elders, past, present and emerging. And we extend that respect to all Indigenous Australians and Indigenous mob all over the world. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. There you are. I've been expecting you. I've just popped the kettle on. Come on in. Hi, and welcome to Hey Auntie. I'm Chantelle Weatherall, and it's my absolute pleasure to have you join me. Hey sis, come on in, take a seat, and make yourself comfy. With Hey Auntie, we're going to remix the proud tradition of the Black Auntie, and we're going to use it to demonstrate that there's millions of ways to be a magical Black woman. Sounds good? Hey Auntie! Hey Auntie! Hey Auntie! Hey Auntie! Hey Auntie! So hey auntie, where are you from? I'm being joined by the amazing Dr. Yudira Perez. She is a anthropologist, a mom, a wife, and a very proud Afro-Latina woman. She grew up in the Bronx and had an incredible uh, childhood and community and family around her. And she shares how uh, her identity identity was formed by all of that experience and then how it was challenged by going out into the world, going to an Ivy League college in the US and then traveling and living in other countries, how she's held on to her sense of self, what it gives her, how she finds community and then a really good point about how this strong sense of self can perhaps trip us up if we're not too careful. Really amazing chat that opened my mind a lot. I know you're going to enjoy it. Check it out. Mm. Well, I would say that I take on several labels. Black, black woman is one. Puerto Rican woman, Bronx, Bronx girl, um, Afro-Latina, traveler, um, connector of communities are all labels that I feel very much at home with and in different ways depending the context and depending on what we're talking about and who I'm talking to I think when I think about who I am at the center of it is someone who's very rooted in a community a Puerto Rican community from the Bronx which meant that I was able to kind of situate myself as Puerto Rican, as black, as non-white, as um, as Latina, as Afro-Latina, as in in a very fluid way. So in ways that people didn't question until I started to travel. Just like I started to distance myself from that yeah. core identity. So when you're outside of your community, you Absolutely. mean like geographically? Geographically, once I began to kind of travel outside the Bronx, outside of New York City, outside of the Northeast, then all of a sudden, you know, people began to question, well, why Latina and not Hispanic? And I was like, hmm, right. interesting. Or 
black? In, in what way? In, you know, in which way? You mean negra. And I was like, oh, interesting that you would assume that I could only characterize, characterize myself as black if I said it in Spanish, right? Wow, because if I took on, a, right. if I said black in English, then that indexed to you something different. Yeah, that so category is, this box has the following uh, boundaries and for them, you don't fit in that. I didn't fit that. So the mm. fact that I can say that, um, and I remember very clearly a situation. This At this point, I was much more of an adult. I was in my mid-20s, but not that much of an adult, you know. Um, but I was doing a big adult thing. I was buying a home. It was my first time buying That's a home. That's such a big deal. It was a big deal. Um, and it was in one of those situations. Well, it was at the table, the closing table, and I was sitting with my realtor. He was a Hispanic man. He said Hispanic and not Latino. I let it be. And then he said that I mean, he was Colombian. And he had pre-checked all the kind of demographic questions. Oh, wow. For you. Because at a closing table, at least the ones in the U.S., you're, you're signing so many legal documents. So you can be there for an hour, two hours, just signing documents. So he was doing me a favor by checking some boxes. For yeah, me. for sure. And it's a highly emotional day. He wants everything to run smoothly for you. Absolutely. But dot dot dot. But but dot dot dot. I'm going through them, and in there, I see that he's checked off white as oh, my race. Wow. And I sat there and I looked at him and I said, "Why white?" And he was like, "Well, you're not black, you know." And I that's could, a big call, buddy. <laughs> huge call, you know. And it's one of those moments that we all have where you begin to see how others see you. Um, and why they make choices on how to identify you, right? For him, he said, well, you're not black American, you know, so... And all of the assumptions that go along with that, I don't consider you to represent those things. So do you think he thought he was doing you a favor? He thought, he absolutely thought I was doing me a favor. And that was part of it also. It was like, well, you know... You, you don't have to you don't be. have to be black. So why would you <laughs> characterize yourself as black? Wow. And I sat there and I told him, no, people like me would get lost in a category of white. Like, you know, my mom was on welfare, 17-year-old mom giving birth to a child in the Northeast U.S. The fact that I'm buying a home, my first home in my mid-20s, is big, and you need to characterize my positioning in this kind of history. So you felt he was taking away that legacy of where you'd come from and what it meant that you'd achieve the things that you'd achieved. Absolutely, without a doubt. I was like, there's no way that Yadira Perez, at that time I wasn't married, Yadira Perez, from the Bronx, from the South Bronx, Hunts Point, one of the areas that's been characterized, and it is, statistically, it's as poor and affected by HIV and AIDS as some of the sub-Saharan Africa, right? So this is wow, a little area. I was not aware of that. Yes, this is a little area. I'm like, so in New York City. In New York City, you've got this little Hunts Point pocket that is of deep poverty. You know, which carrying is carrying so much 
burden in terms of health of the the racial mix and the inequality oh i mean class inequalities i mean the bronx was burning and absolutely burning and partly because the government the state had literally turned its you know it turned away from from the area from the communities i was that was where i was raised right and yes there were ashes but there was communities you know boots on the streets creating really strong spaces of rejuvenation and community. So for me, the fact that I, who was from that area, was now in my 20s buying a home in New Jersey meant something that did not at all. I never associated myself as white. Ever right? If you gave me, he I mean, he was kind of saying you graduated to whiteness. Graduated, absolutely. He was like, <laughs> "Look, you're buying your first home. Wow. You know, yeah. you're educated." And I, I absolutely believed he was erasing that positioning, that um, that particular path. You know, your of, of story meant too much to you. So whatever advantage he thought he was giving you, you were like, uh-uh. no, no. Yeah. And that I felt very comfortable talking to him about it. You know, f- you know, it was very easy. I was like, no, black. Right. And then I told him, look, me and you can argue about this racial binary. Right. Fine. Right. If you want to go that route. However, at the end of the day, I'm black. I'm not white. That's not that's yeah. not where we where I'm situating myself. So anyway, that was one of the interesting situations. But it, that is such an interesting experience because I think that you clearly had a really strong understanding and feeling for your uh, identity at that mm-hmm. point, which is really early in life. Mm-hmm. The Afro-Latina experience, sometimes sisters can feel erased in Latin culture. So how did you experience those different elements of your culture growing up? So I was born in 1979, and again to a 17-year-old mom. She was also navigating the many communities and cultures of New York City, She was young, you know? She's building community, building identity. And at that moment, hip-hop was strong. So was um, disco. Uh, You know, that was her scene. Is it really cheesy for me to ask you if... Because I'm building an image in my mind. Is it like... um, and they get down. Yeah, I love. I knew you were going to ask that. <laughs> so look, I know, especially here in Australia, there's lots of critique about the get down, particularly because of who created it. Now I tell you, please. <laughs> but as a Puerto Rican growing up in, like, they, it was filmed in, in my neighborhood. Oh, you know, wow. look, it was very much a. There was lots of it that felt so real. Wow, right. So, so real, right? Like, yes, the church was... There was different types of churches, different types of Christian churches that were very much at the center. However, the community crossover, going at, like, the the community happened in the streets. It happened in the parks. It happened in the abandoned buildings, right? And that's when music was the way in which we resisted some of the real tough shit that we were going through. But also, 
it wasn't just about resistance, right? There was really beautiful friendships that were already fostered and already made. And then the parties was the jump off spot where you can actually celebrate with your people, right? So it wasn't that the parties made the space for these friendship and community. The community was there, right? Strong community. And it was in that, that the music actually can get produced and get created, right? So, you know, what what a beautiful response to adversity. Well, without a doubt, you know, the Bronx was resourceful as shit, right? We we knew that at the end of the day, if we're going to make it, it was going to be relying on each other, relying on a community, figuring out what people needed, but also connecting them with someone else who had, right? So it was always about networking and connecting. So that's what, when I think about, you know, how I became really strongly Oh, how I kind of crafted my identity as like a Latina, Afro-Latina, Puerto Rican. My experience in my household made it that I didn't have to choose anyone. It was constantly like we were a kitchen table kind of family where anybody can come. We were about listening. We were about learning and connecting. Right. So in some ways, we were vessels for all of like all the happenings in the streets. Yeah, it sounds like the neighborhood was a melting pot. Yeah. Um, massive amount of community relying on each other, mixing with each other, partly out of necessity. Yeah. And then that maybe is reflected in the family as well, that there's a lot of exchange going on. Absolutely, right? So in that way, I understood myself, okay, that kind of distinction. I am black. However, there is a black American experience that I can... I can kind of like share in this kind of concentric circle type way. However, there's another part of it that's distinctly theirs, right? And then Mm -hmm. for me, as a black Puerto Rican female, there is something that's really strong that connects me very strongly to Puerto Rico, an island, the Caribbean, right? That's a whole nother another layer, right? Yeah, absolutely. So then I had my Dominican you know, brothers and sisters, and I have my Jamaican brothers and sisters, of which we also had places where we connected and things that we didn't. Did you ever feel any hesitance of claiming your place in any of those communities growing up? I would say when I got to high school, there we began to see, because my high school was in an Italian neighborhood. There were whites, but the whites were Italian, right? So they were a different kind of ethnic white, and we understood them very much as, like, not the norm white or not the, like, dominant white. Not the white. Anglo white. Not the Anglo white. So, yeah. But they were white, and they were Italian. Um, and in our particular Catholic all-girl high school, there was really strong pockets of ethnic groups. So... You know, the black girls, Isn't black it Americans. How and when you go into these institutional settings, yeah. that's where these hard lines start to be drawn. But it didn't mean that we didn't hang out, right? My, my school, there, has, there was a bit of social justice mixed in with it. So it didn't mean that we didn't cross the lines for either, you know, the AIDS parade, which was a big thing. You know, you knew that those, those kind of communities existed in a way that made people feel comfortable. I absolutely never felt that there was this separation between, we also are all from the Bronx, 
We also have an experience with being on welfare, probably. Um, we have an experience with, you know, the lights being out or, you know, like there was this the class whole, level, yeah. this working class. That's what people class. forget, right? Yeah. Class is such a biggie. Class is such a biggie. Oh, absolutely. Because at the end of the day, like, we can't be like, you're this, you're that. At the end of the day, we're like, we hey, all here. We all here. And you're like, do you have a lunch ticket? Man, I don't have a dollar to pay for my lunch ticket. Do you got a free one? Yeah, I got a free lunch ticket to use mine. You know, like, so we were all struggling mm. in very similar ways. There were a few. It's almost a, it's a leveler, though, isn't it? Like a connector. Yeah. And as I, again, traveled away from that, and then people began to place me differently. Like, oh, she's from New York. Not from the Bronx, not from the South Bronx, <laughs> but from New York. All of a sudden, there was like a different cachet, right? right. Um, Is that because it's what suited their purpose at the time? Absolutely. It did, you know? Um, absolutely, it did. It was what they can kind of connect with, you know? Um, and saying from the Bronx, I mean, I feel like when I say I'm from the Bronx, I get two different reactions. One is like, Oh wow, you've like emerged like the phoenix from some you, rubble. You are the you are the exceptional negro. You are the exceptional <laughs> negro, absolutely. You know, and then I get the other one from the Bronx, and it's like, wow. You know, I lived in New Zealand for some time, and like I had a Maori brother who was like, man, my neighborhood was called the Bronx. You know, because it was so poor. That fellowship again. That fellowship. Between people from a similar class background. Absolutely. Yeah, that is so interesting. Yeah, so it was like, oh, wait. So he placed me. And his, and even if he saw me like, wow, you really kind of overcome lots of di- like adversity, it was placing it not from like your people, like you like, you're so different from those people. It was more like, man, I understand how much you had to overcome. Yeah, he, it sounds right? like he's extending empathy Absolutely. and seeing how you guys are similar rather than, you know, I I have been on the receiving end of that exceptional Negro stuff before, mm-hmm. and I know it's well-meaning, but, you know, the residual feeling is it's a little bit dehumanizing, and it robs you of your lived experience, and it also creates a distance between you and the person you're engaging with at that time. You're like, hey, I'm, I'm actually here. I'm in front of you. I'm just trying to connect with you right now. Absolutely. And it also connects you from the community, right? And I'm like, no, 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 no. Because, you know, where I am in my life isn't because I distance myself from my community. It's because of those communities, right? right? The, the struggle that communities had to go through to get seen, right, as being equal and worthy of being treated as humans, right? That was part of it. Don't disconnect me from the community that literally shouldered me and broke ground so that I can get here. So, yeah. Like, so if you distance me from that, then already there's, like, this hollow ground between us. I can't. It's a big gap, right? It's a huge it's a big gap. gap to try and traverse. And absolutely, I'm like, what pedestal are you putting me on? Because it's right? lonely on that pedestal. Completely. And I'm like, and is it for you so you can see me fall? Because mm. this is not cool. This is not going to happen. True, true. You know, because I'm like, mm. so I'm quite 
weary when someone definitely kind of creates that. How do you respond in those situations? Because they undoubtedly happen, you know, you're a really accomplished um, academic, Mm -hmm. um, Dr. Yaddy, um, which I love. Um, So you're often going to be, I'm guessing, put in that situation. Mm -hmm. What, What do you, how do you respond now? Well, largely I say, oh, no, actually, there's you know, there's many successes that come out of the Bronx, right? And it's because of the community that creates it. And, and one time I was telling this woman, she's like, really? I don't know. And I was like, well, A, there's a silencing in, 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 in history of it. And there's continued silencing of the present of it. But also I was like, you can, you know, just by taking my word. Oh, yeah. Just take my word for it. I just told you, though. I just told you. <laughs> you know? And it's like... And I'm oh. a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> but that's it. It's like, take my word. And then if you want to, you know... Gosh, wear these so true. Take, you know, wear these new, new lens of seeing the Bronx, then you'll see for yourself as well, right? Mm. But for now, just hold that to be true, Right? I absolutely love that you said that because that is something else in our experience, which is that your first-hand testimony of your lived experience absolutely. is often something that people expect you to bring, like, data sets to give evidence of. I mean, there were, and there was points in my life where I would say, like, oh, you know, when I traveled. So I lived in Japan for some time, and when I said I was from the Bronx, they were like, oh... You're from the United States, the Bronx? And I said, yes. And it'd be like, oh, interesting. Because, you know, they thought the U.S. as lily white and blue eyes. So That's their branding, right? That's their branding. <laughs> it is. So then for them to say, I was like, I'm from the Bronx, and that's in New York. And the U.S. is quite diverse. And then I would say, do you know Sammy Sosa? And Sammy Sosa is a Dominican baseball player that at the time was really well known. Because baseball is huge in, in Japan. Japan right? right? So they could get that, right? And they're like, oh, cool. And then I can say Jennifer Lopez, Puerto Rican, from New York, from the Bronx. And they're like, oh. So I felt like at one point in my life, I needed these kind of like stats, you yeah. know, to hear well, these people from this area that you may know. Um, you're dealing with curiosity there. Yes, absolutely. And you are using that to to bridge a gap between you and a person yeah that's that's curiosity Mm -hmm. rather than sort of a a, an assumption a dismissal yeah (laughs) right a dismissal of who i am i'm telling you and they're like nah that's not you no 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 (laughs) wait what can't be possible you're far too clever (laughs) exactly so speaking of dismissals or the vibe not being right have you ever had times where you've been in an environment where you felt like hey I don't belong here so one of my big experiences as a child was growing up in a catholic church however once I went into college I was looking for a Christian Catholic community that was as down for social justice that actually lived the word of God and Jesus about all humans being equal, about being a service to people, and I couldn't find that. But that had been your experience in the church that you that grew was, up in. That was, you That's know, awesome to hear. So that was that was totally my experience 
being in the Bronx in the 1970s and 1980s, there is, like, seriously, if you were a church that was turning your back on the prostitutes, the HIV and AIDS infected, which were some heroin addicts, the homeless, the... um, The work that Jesus did. Absolutely. Exactly. Then what, who are you, right? So they rose to the challenge. Absolutely. And come from a community where that was almost an expectation. Absolutely. We protested, we demanded housing for, you know, young girls or young mothers, you know, the 16, 14-year-olds with my church at the center of it, you know? Beautiful. So that experience later on, when I tried to find a space that affirmed my non-whiteness as well as my social justice, in the space of love and Jesus, right, I couldn't find that, honestly. And so were you, had you moved away? I did. So I lived in the Bronx, and then I went to upstate New York, Cornell University. Yes, sister. I'm doing all sorts of arm waving. That is that is awesome. So I went to Cornell, and Cornell is this beautiful liberal little town. Yeah, on paper, it is all of the kind of left leaning. In an Australian context, they would be Guardian lifetime subscribers. They would be Green voters. You know, really, you know, everything is organic. Everything is in a mason jar. Absolutely. But when I was like, you know, why aren't we fighting for this particular school in the black community to stay open? They're like, well, maybe we'll send food for Thanksgiving. And so the class thing has come into play there. Absolutely. So I just felt so distant. I felt that, you know, the stronger messages of divisiveness of, you know, lesbians and gays are not walking the the way of the Lord and I couldn't find a space like the ones I did. So that's tough because you've worked your butt off to get into such a prestigious institution. Mm-hmm. So it's like you've got to find a path through it. So how on earth do you navigate that? Well, through community. You've, and that's the other thing. I realized that like, all right, so that is, I guess in my life, I've, there's ways I cultivate really deep roots but they're not just in one place, you know, they cross. So that wasn't, I couldn't create a new route in my kind of religious, spiritual home in that, there. In that place. But I had it, you know, I had it in my family. I had it with some friends. You know, I felt at that point in my life, I can kind of create my own um, spiritual path, spiritual so, yeah, so I didn't feel like I had thrown all my eggs in one basket. You okay. know? I went into uni thinking that I wanted history or government because I loved people, and I thought that government would be it. I took one subject and decided, oh, heck nah, right? <laughs> there was very little. You hardly saw people on those pages. But you don't know. You're, you're like 18. 18, right? You're just guessing. I know you're like... Yeah, someone gave you a pen at a yeah. uni show. Then you go and you're like, nah. No. You, I, you had the wherewithal to get on out of there. Well, I did. One of the things, and that's, that's a privilege, absolutely, that my family gave me because, whew, you know, they, my family didn't pressure me to do something practical. 
Man, that is so real. I was never explicitly told that I should study a practical, um, a vocational course, but I definitely felt pressure to give my parents something where they would think, oh, she's safe, you know? So I went to law school and I studied law and I knew while I was there, I had no intention of being a lawyer, but it gave my parents comfort. I definitely think that that's such a gift for you to have had the freedom to go, hey, this doesn't fit. I'm going to try something else. But along the lines of what you're saying, I did have that freedom, but I did feel that weight of responsibility to give back. Similar to you, you know, this PhD, especially in the United States, my PhD took eight years. That's a lot of money. Hence, going back to that previous conversation of buying my first home at 27, it was, I shouldn't have bought a home at 27. I wasn't really in a position to do so. However, because there was a possibility of doing it, I saw it as a way of, I knew I wasn't going to live in it, but I thought, hey, my brother and my sister, my brother was a young father. There was very few, like, landlords that would rent to him and his wife, you know, or his... You're, so uh, I was so like... you're thinking, not for your... You're 27 years yeah. old, and your decision-making is not about planning just your future. And you, what you're saying now, yeah. I think, speaks so deeply to an experience of people of colour mm-hmm. that most of the time, many people are not just going, what's my goal trajectory? No. We have family, cultural responsibilities. And so we are trying, you know, sometimes without a lot of advice to to think of the futures of a whole bunch of people. Oh, without a doubt. And like without very little advice, a lot of, a lot of um, trial and error. But Man. that was it. I was yeah. like, I can buy this home. It's a symbol. It's a kind of giving, a symbol that I've made it in the American sense. Um, but also I can start giving really concretely back to my family in some way. Yes. Financially was the worst, one of the worst decisions, right? I'm so glad you brought that up, though, because that is, it's it's a real challenge for us. It's a real challenge for us because... The weight of the familial responsibility, not that it's wrong. I love the way we look out for each other. I do too. But the lack of advice, and also I think we don't talk about it a lot. Yeah. You you know, I can't... Well, when you were in this situation at 27, I'm guessing you weren't saying to your friends, guys, do you think I should do this? No. Nope. You don't have it. peers to refer to. No, I don't, you know. There were so many obstacles in their way, and I was like... Look, many people are not going to look out for them. If it isn't me, right? Then Everyone's gonna just going to characterize it? them as, you know, this young ass bro who shouldn't have impregnated this woman or this, you know, like all this. Yeah, I hear you. I really hear you. And I, re- you know, I love what you said. If it isn't me, then who's going to do it? And mm-hmm. I, I think that young black women the world over oh. are in situations so often where they are facing that question and not only are they facing it um but they're facing it alone and they're facing it with maybe a little 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 salty sprinkle on top of shame so they won't discuss it oh absolutely without a doubt even i mean here i'm like in a very well-to-do neighborhood in melbourne and i find myself constantly having to 
backtrack and let people know, oh, no, I still support my family back home at times, you know? Like, oh, no, like, my mom relies heavily on me for future planning. Like, it's not the other way around yet. My, You know, like, I'm just hoping that my mom is such, you know, sets herself up enough that then I don't have to continue or at least invest a lot more yeah, as she grows older. I so hear you because people see externally um, that you have transitioned to mm-hmm. some sort of new life situation. Mm-hmm. But what they don't see is that those cultural responsibilities, those familiar responsibilities, they continue and you don't begrudge them, but they are very much part of our life and part of the texture of our lives. Absolutely. And actually it's part of feeling belonging is feeling like the people around you understand that and don't put you in situations where you feel embarrassed because you, mm-hmm. you're going to have to say no to something or explain for the 10th time why you can't do that. <laughs> Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. You know, Clinton and I, I think, are at a point where we are a bit more open about, no, there's still debt that we're paying off. Look, a house, buying a house is not in our future enough. We couldn't even imagine how to build the nest egg yet, right? It's like we are light years behind, you know, not even ahead, behind. We understand that we're actually in a privileged position to be around a community that knows us enough now, knows who we are, knows our character, right? We've created good people who are empathetic, Right, so we can be transparent. You're not fronting. You We're not fronting. To. How freeing is that? It is. It is. It's very freeing. You can, and you're going to have some tough conversations. But I think that, again, talking about that kitchen roundtable with my family, you have those tough conversations. You know, um, it wasn't that it was always, you know, do you want a cup of coffee mm-hmm. or, you know, there's some tough situations that were talked about. Many of the men in my family ended up in prison for a variety of reasons, right? Though there was really tough conversations that came around that, um, whether their wives would still be there after, you know, where exa- you know what what's going to happen when they come back? What I mean, all these. So, and were those conversations that, as a child, you your family were just like, look, she's part of the family; she's going to be at this table while they're discussed. Not, no. I would say this. I was one of those really curious children, of which I see my daughter being one. Because I was the first grandchild, I was raised, my my mom was 17, my youngest uncle was 12. I always thought that I was my grandmother's youngest child. I, right? You thought they were your peers. They were my, yeah, right? I mean, I understood. I respected my mom as my mom, but also... We developed a relationship where we really trust each other's opinion, right? The hierarchy exists because of respect, not because... Um, like a lack of shared understanding. Yeah, exactly. We yeah. So, so they would try to create a distance, right? So that I wasn't carrying the weight that they were carrying. However, I was quite curious. I would always find a whole way to kind of hide and listen. So you knew the score. You knew where you came from and, you know, the the beauty and the challenges of that. Um, I love how 
fluently and comfortably you go from speaking about being at Cornell to, oh yeah, some of my uncles were incarcerated and that's part of my story too. Mm -hmm. And I love the way that you carry all of that with the same grace. Mm -hmm. Like, do you think that's something that you've developed through getting older and more mature do you think that's something that maybe your work in anthropology has helped you to connect to i do think it's all of that i think as i grow older i realize and i go because within my community these were all issues that we dealt with right it wasn't like what you know and you only ca- have you've carried that comfort and uh transparency with you outside i do and you know there is i do believe that there is you do create like you create strong relationships and in creating those strong relationships transparency has to happen right there has to be sharing of self in the most rawest sense but that happens in in piecemeal like it doesn't always happen sometimes there's those moments when you meet someone and seven hours later you feel like you've known them for you years. know them for years right but you got to be comfortable with yourself first you do and absolutely and i felt like there's a way that I, because I was constantly creating community, I began to learn how to narrate my story, right? And oh, I love that phrase. You learned how to narrate your story. Yeah, and it came, but it comes from asking questions, right? So instead of saying, what do you do? I usually ask people, so, you know, where's home or what, you know, what community is, you know, what community, where, how, how was it growing up where you grew up, right? Yeah. And then searching for ways in which to weave our experiences together, because then you share, I share, um, you know, and talking about either raising kids or moving into different worlds, right? Um, it seems different places, different worlds, or... Sometimes it is finding your favorite coffee shop, right? Like, it's just finding ways that you can begin to weave similar experiences. And in that, then sharing the things that are pretty damn different about you, you know? Um, But it's like you have these nodes already, right? That it's not going to, they're not repelling. They're kind of just strengthening that space that you've created already. Um, So I've become really transparent really open about some really serious situations that have happened to me. And there's people from all walks of life. I have friends who are in their teens, friends who are in their 80s, but there's something about their eyes that speaks to their soul that makes me feel this is worth crafting a relationship with this person. I totally hear you because, you know, as another person who's living on the other side of the world from everyone they grew up with, you sort of quickly learn who you can build trust with and who you can't. Mm -hmm. And also, I think it does build a bit of fluency in um, carrying and narrating your story because you do kind of have to build credibility and build relationship with people. Mm -hmm. So you're going to have to share a bit more. And that means through sharing again and again, you're going to have to get comfortable with those key parts of your narrative and who you are so because people can smell uh inauthenticity absolutely and i think that sparkle in the eye for me when i meet people 
you've just listening to you has just made me think this i think it's people who have got some level of comfort with who they are yes i know it for sure they i feel would say safe to me absolutely there's the lack of a wall you know they hold your gaze a little longer right they listen a bit more or they get excited and jump into your conversation right yeah. so it's like it's both it's all the i mean it's all these things but allows you to see that they're like in it with you. They're like digging in deeply with you. Their guard is down. Yes. Because whatever it might be that they're carrying or who they know themselves to be, they are at some level of peace with it. So they're not hiding. So you don't have to hide either. Yeah, that's definitely, it's one of the things that I've learned very clearly. Like it's been my experience as a young girl, but now I know for sure transparency and empathy are such deep values for me. And that crosses it, right? It's just like crosses relationships, experiences for me. And that sparkle in the eye, if it's not there, it doesn't mean I don't talk to you, but this means that that we don't hold that space for long, you know? It might be a one-off... And what you share is different. Yeah, and it might be just a casual high and by now, right? But we don't weave something together. Yeah, I love that because I think another uh, thing that people are often, um, you know, when I was on the journey of uh, really getting to know my cultural identity, my identity as a woman, as a black woman, all of the different elements of my identity, um, I've got to say, I gotta say, I became very enthusiastic for sharing my story. <laughs> I love it. You're like, you want to hear yeah, it? I, was I like, got to say, guess what? Guess what happened when I was eight? Guess. <laughs> um, and I learned quickly that knowing who you are um, does not mean sharing who you are with everyone. <laughs> yes, I like that. You know, I know that in the beginning you asked like my discovery as you know kind of a black woman, a Latin, like that that belonging in home. I think that was not easy, but much more transparent for me in the ways that my family operated um, than black womanhood, a woman like who was I as a woman that yeah. could then relate intimately to a partner. Now that space, I needed a whole lot of expansion, a whole lot of walls to break down. Tell me how those two states are distinct. For me, the kind of identifying who I was was in a place of community, not a one-on-one reciprocity, right? So the intimacy of a partner challenged some of the ways that I had learned to become an Afro-Latina woman, right? Yeah, because they were almost like crowdsourced from the community. Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. that's, That's the learning process, right? It is. And when I looked at it, you know, my mom, single mom, quite independent. She loved love, but in some ways thought that love kind of restricted her and looked... To kind of... A bit suspicious of it. Oh, yes, right? Like, it made you lose your footing in some way, right? So, once, like, I have established this very much strong, resilient, man, there was an issue, I could solve it. However, now, 
is this thing called love, this relationship I want to cultivate. When if I felt that I was being undermined in some way, being asked to kind of give up some of my independence. Some of your sovereignty. Then what I would do, right? And part of it was like, I was always suspicious that they were holding some kind of checklist of my, like, the, the places I fell short at, right? So, <laughs> right, yeah, I hear you. So, you, so part of forming your identity of a, as a as a black woman and Afro Latina to mm-hmm. that point um, was looking at the people in your life who were uh, role models, and what they had modelled to you very much was independence and sovereignty being integral to your identity. Absolutely. But they have to be compromised to some extent in Absolutely. partnering. People like to feel like you need them. That's it, right? It took me a while to figure that out. I mean, it took me a while to realize that, like, oh, you know, I really thought that at the end of it, men had this, like, agenda that the way they kept you down was to kind of always um, chip chip away at you, right? So I would hear any of their requests as demands that I then had to take a sword sword at and like chop down, right? Because it was it came it spoke directly to your identity. Because it spoke to your sovereignty and your independence. Yeah, I was like, I'm independent and yeah. I can you know, why don't you see the, all the things Man, that I can I bring? That. Man, you know? I hear that, yeah. Letting yourself be loved. Oh, um, can be really hard because I think as women of color, as black women, especially the generation that came, my mom had me when she was 18. Mm-hmm. So, so much of what she modeled to me about what being a, a great woman was, was her strength and yeah. her independence. And so I definitely internalize that myself too. Yeah. And I think, you know, we hear the phrase strong black woman a lot. Um, Potentially it's overused. So I love that you raise the idea that our idea of our identity needs to be malleable and it needs to be able to change when you get into this new situation. Well, absolutely. And this kind of intimacy, I think what what I've learned to cultivate is understanding how justice can live in intimacy and love. I, I really love the way that you brought a conversation in about um, embracing your femininity and graduating yeah. into embracing your femininity. Absolutely. Because I think that if I'm honest, um, while I may have uh, externally portrayed the behaviors of femininity as far as my character i don't think i've really felt comfortable inhabiting my feminine energy mm-hmm. until i really in the last few years mm-hmm. because there is vulnerability there oh absolutely and i think vulnerability and safety and my idea of black womanhood could not uh, coexist mm-hmm I mean, you put it perfectly. I I can say that I, that resonates absolutely. But aren't we being robbed then? We're being robbed of the... If we make the idea that strength is a prerequisite of being mm. a black woman, mm. then we rob ourselves of the tenderness and all of the goodness. Because at the same time, I've had a lot of conversations with women. I have felt this deeply in my heart myself, um, that it's really lonely being strong. Oh, absolutely. It is so lonely being strong. 
And it feels like there's a there's a constant critique going back to that kind of pedestal, right? You're strong, so you can take a few beatings or you can kind of, what for me, I can never take a few beatings. I was like, uh-uh. So if I saw anything that was kind of toxic, my way of dealing with it was I walked away and recreated anew. And I was so damn good at it, right? And, and you felt like that was a manifestation of your strength? Oh, totally. I was like, look how I can do this. How do you reflect on that now? Oh, I mean, I would, I would run away. Running away. I, I only say that because, man, I had that realization about myself. I totally ran away, right? Yeah. And, and in some ways, they were right. There was a level in which I did not, I would open myself up. And many of them used to be like, damn, I wish I was one of your girlfriends because you seem to let them in deeper than you would yeah. me, right? And I was just like, yeah, because we don't have to navigate the same kind of path together that me and you are expected to navigate. My relationship with them is not going to be a threat to my sense of self. It's not. It actually affirms it, you know? Yeah, Right. So, God, that is so interesting and so true. That resonates with me so deeply. I think that, you know, we talked about other people putting us on a pedestal, which is lonely, which is dehumanizing. But I think what you've introduced is the idea that sometimes maybe um, the ideas of self and belonging that we form can themselves be dehumanizing and lonely. Well, absolutely. What kind of contradiction is there that I'm living, you know? But it's because, again, what you said, it was this pedestal of strength, being a particular type of woman who... I must be strong. I must be strong. Because I know where I'm from. Absolutely. I'm from this... this did you, yeah. I, I can say it because I, I, it, I speaks to, it speaks to my experience too. Uh, it speaks to my experience. I, I hung on for a long time to the idea that that was what strength was. There was definitely a turning point and I think every relationship where you realize maybe I don't want to continue down this path, right? And it was the small step of not leaving the house after a major argument. Everything in me wanted to disappear. And I said, huh, the fact that it's so easy for me to do that is because it's a path so worn in my life. What would look different? And it was like the, the simplest thing that seemed like I wasn't using any of my intelligence any of my you know I wasn't relying on the strength of the family and my mother it was just to stay the night we went to work I went into the couch I went to the couch and I said I need to understand why let's talk and I think that that is I, I love this because I think this is so integral to knowing where you're from oh, and absolutely. your sense of belonging and your sense of self because you need to have a sense of self which can withstand the normal storms of everyday life and what it takes to have the things in life that will make you nourished because it might be a relationship, it might be a job, exactly. it might be anything, but you can't have such a fragile sense of self that you have to run away when things get tough. 
Oh man, that's and I say that because yeah. oh, le- I've been learning that so much too. Oh, absolutely, and that's and then and then once you have that experience, I think it's really important for ourselves to take the time and say. Acknowledge that was hard. That was so hard. I wish it wasn't, but it was. And guess what? I did it anyway. That day, I remember walking into that living room, sitting on that couch, and my body was shivering. Like the kind of thing you think when your life is being taken away at an instant, right? Like that's what growth feels like. Oh, it I, was honestly. It's it's terrifying. Terrifying because. You know, so much of the journey up until, I know it's not necessarily age dependent on people, but for me, until my 30s, was forming a sense of self, trying to grab hold of that wet soap that was just slipping out of my hands every time I tried to close my hands around it. And then when I got it, I held it so tightly that all of a sudden this idea that growth was making space within that sense of self to not hold it so tightly again and realize it wouldn't go anywhere because it was embedded now, it was in me. Man, that felt crummy. (laughs) (laughs) But I think it's beautiful and I think it's it's another level into getting what that sort of deep comfort. Oh, absolutely. I would say the work that we did from that moment on has created the kind of... comfort and silence that I never had before. Thanks again to my amazing guest and thank you for listening. So you've heard what the aunties have to say. What do you think? HeyAuntiePod at gmail.com Facebook or Instagram That's Auntie A-U-N-T-Y Don't forget to like and subscribe and join us in a week for the next show. 